0: Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, again, we're thankful that we can come together this evening to study Your Word. We're thankful that You have provided us with such a complete and sufficient revelation of Yourself and that as we study it, we consistently uh, discover new things. We have our understanding uh, expanded and our and our understanding tightened. And And the more we study, the more we learn. And there's just so much more that we can learn. Father, we pray that we won't ever tire of learning new things about you and about your word and about your plan for history and about your provisions for our spiritual life now fathers we study these things today we pray you'll challenge us with them and that we'll recognize what a what a important thing it is to understand your your plan the scope of your plan and how we fit into it we pray this in christ's name amen we're studying the new covenant for background to Hebrews 8 in our study in Hebrews, but we are in Isaiah tonight. Background for understanding the <clears throat> new covenant: we have to understand first and foremost that it is the eighth uh, covenant that's in the Old Testament. It is the fifth and final covenant in the uh, related to Israel. The first and foundational covenant for Israel is the Abrahamic covenant. Which promised Israel three things: land, seed, and blessing. Each paragraph, each aspect of the Abrahamic covenant is then developed in subsequent covenants. So that the land covenant, or the land provision, is expanded in the land covenant. The the seed promise is developed in the Davidic covenant, and the blessing aspect is is expanded in the in the new covenant. The Davidic covenant is important to understand because. When we get into the study of the new covenant, we realize that it's often linked with the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. We'll see that in a, one passage in Isaiah this evening. It's also linked with the uh, final fulfillment of the of the uh, land covenant with Israel. So if Israel's not in the land and they don't have it, the Davidic seed on the throne, then the new covenant hasn't been fulfilled yet. It hasn't been enacted. Now, this chart we've looked at puts things into a chronological perspective with the dispensational timeline at the bottom uh, with the uh, different ages in the history of Israel and positioning the covenants I just mentioned, those four covenants uh, within their framework and then showing that they are all fulfilled at the time that Jesus Christ returns Establish his king establishes His kingdom, and these are all enacted at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. The dashed line indicates the relationship of the church to the new covenant by way of our position in Christ, our relationship to Him. We also looked at four aspects of the covenant. It's just general background. We have these various scriptures. We have persons, God who initiates the covenant, and the house of Judah and house of Israel are the covenant partners. And then the importance, and I've revised this, and it's important to to understand why I revised this. The importance of the covenant is it provides for the, and the previous reading was it provides for the regeneration of Israel. And that terminology is common terminology to what we read, what you read in a number of books on on prophecy, dispensations. Uh, Doctor Ryrie uses it when he talks about these new covenant passages. Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum uses it even more. And the more I started looking at some of these passages, the term regeneration is actually never used in any of these passages. There's washing, there's cleansing, the heart of stone being replaced by a heart of flesh. There's a number of things there that are related to regeneration. The term isn't used. And the reason I want to be careful with it is because the it is national. The people who receive this at the beginning of the tribulation are not becoming saved. See, regeneration carries that that sense of moving from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. There's two things we have to remember about these passages. Number one, they're not talking about individuals. Only an individual can be regenerated. Number two, these passages are applied, um, these passages never use the word regeneration. They use terms that are similar and that, I can I can see why people have gone to to use that word, but I think it leads to some other areas of confusion, and I don't think it's the best choice of words because the Jews that come at the, at, when they the Jews come to the end of the tribulation period, these Jews are saved. Many of them are are saved. They're already saved. When they leave Jerusalem, they, they see the abomination of desolation and they flee to the mountains. Why do they flee to the mountains? Because in Matthew 24, Jesus said, when you see these signs, flee to the mountains. So why would an unregenerate apostate Jew be obeying Jesus' command in the Sermon on the Mount? So the fact that they're fleeing indicates either their They're sympathetic, they've got family members, they have friends that are already saved and are applying Matthew 24, or they're already saved and they're applying Matthew 24. But when they get to the wilderness in Basra in the desert there and nationally call upon Jesus to come back as a corporate body, not just as individuals. See, you had individuals, Jews saved at at the... uh, at the first advent before the crucifixion. You had more individual Jews respond to Peter's message in Acts 2 and in Acts 3 where he clearly promises millennial blessing. That In Acts 3 he uses the term that if, we accept Jesus, if they accept Jesus as Messiah, then the times of refreshing will come. That's millennial terminology. So this offer of the kingdom seems to still be a legitimate offer even after the ascension During that early stage, that's, of course, long before they're taken out under the fifth cycle of discipline. So you have numerous individual Jews regenerated in the sense of being justified, saved, moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. But you don't have this national change that takes place that is what's described in these various new covenant passages. And it's interesting when you get into them, they use that terminology of cleansing and changing, but there's other things that go with it that are not part of the regeneration package that a church age believer has. So if we use the term regeneration for what happens when a church age believer, or Old Testament believer gets saved, and we relate that to how these these passages describe what's happening to the nation then we can get into some real confusion. So I think we have to stop and, and uh, reflect upon that to just make sure we're using uh, the best terminology. And so I've changed this to reflect the terminology that we have in the, in the text of Scripture. And that the New Covenant provides for the national cleansing. Why? Because the nation has been ceremonially and ritually defiled by their disobedience to God their rejection of the Messiah and their past idolatry and what it, what happens at the second coming is their Messiah comes as the son of David who's going to establish his personal residence in the temple and there's going to be the the consecration and sanctification of the of the land For the temple, and the temple itself is a mile square, Jerusalem at the the center part is 10 miles square, and then the whole temple, Jerusalem area in the Millennial Kingdom is like 50 miles square. So this has to be consecrated, which means to be set apart to the service of God, and it has to be cleansed because it has been defiled through the last centuries. But that's not the same thing as moving from unsaved to saved. So I think it's very important to come in and, and clarify this terminology. And so I've changed it to that this covenant provides for the national cleansing and restoration of Israel along with a new spiritual life that is unique to the millennial kingdom, just as we in the church age have a spiritual life that is unique to this age. It's based on the indwelling and the filling of God, the Holy Spirit. There's a unique spiritual life for Israel in the millennial kingdom because everyone is saved. No one needs to be taught of their neighbor about God. Everyone ha- will have an intuitive knowledge of the, of the existence of God and the truth of Scripture. And so it's a vastly different uh, spiritual life and has different characteristics than what we have today. So I think that by using the same term, using the term regeneration, to, to describe all of that takes us beyond simple salvation. I mean, it, it gets confusing because all of that goes way beyond just simple justification. And regeneration is, a, as we normally use it, is a, is a more restricted term. So we'll see that as we go through some of these passages. So we're going to use the terminology. It provides for a national cleansing, restoration of saved Israel, along with a new spiritual life and the fulfillment of all the other covenants and promises to them. And then we went through the ten provisions which uh, reinforce that unique state of salvation and spiritual life for the national is- nation of Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. And I think it's really important just to reinforce again and again that this is talking about the nation as a corporate entity uh, going through this cleansing restoration process because a vast number of these, the individuals who make up the nation have already been judged, have, all, I mean, justified, have already been received eternal life. So let's not, let's be careful not to confuse those ideas. So we started off our study in the Old Testament to understand the New Covenant's relation to Israel. And I've just started walking us through Old Testament passages in a chronological manner. This is called a diachronic procedure as you take, take the study of a doctrine or a scripture and trace it chronologically as it's revealed. So the first passage we looked at several lessons back was Hosea 2:17 and 18. Hosea... Uh, flourished his ministry was in the 8th century bc and it overlapped the time of isaiah and amos and he simply talks about the fact that in that day i will make a covenant and so it indicates a new or a different covenant other than the mosaic covenant the davidic covenant or the land covenant and then last time we started looking at the isaiah passages and there are several key, there are six key references in Isaiah to a future covenant. And the first passage we looked at is this passage, Isaiah 42.6, and so open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42, just a brief review, and then we'll move into the next one, next chapters. In Isaiah chapter 40, a new section of the book develops which focuses on God's plan for Israel in the future. The first 39 chapters focus on his judgment. They're very negative. They focus on God's uh, warning of divine judgment. This happens a couple hundred years before the Babylonian captivity. And Isaiah warns of this coming judgment. But, but then in chapters 40 to the end of the book, the focus is on uh, the future hope, restoration of the nation, and their salvation through the Messiah, who is referred to in these passages as your servant. And so these are called the servant um, songs of the servant in Isaiah. This is one of the most difficult. It's in this section, Isaiah 40 to 66, that we have, of course, Isaiah 53 and several other very important messianic promises and prophecies. And up through the Middle Ages, this was one of the toughest sections for uh, Jews to deal with in terms of any kind of uh, witness from Christians. You just re- ask a, ask a uh, Jew to read Isaiah 53 and explain what it means, and uh, they're not going to know. And if they know anything today, if they are educated in what the rabbis have taught, they will say that the servant is, is the nation Israel. Now, one of the reasons I want to tell you that is because as we look at some of these passages, you will see a few places where, oh well, you know, that could be corporate, but we'll point out that within the same context, it it really why it can't be the corporate nation as the as the servant. It has to be uh, an individual, and we have to understand that. So, if you get an opportunity and you're witnessing um, to a Jew, then you can go to these passages. But Isaiah, it took it took. 800 years before the rabbis came up with an interpretation that they thought could work to explain why the servant was was the nation because they were losing too many Jews to conversions after they read Isaiah Isaiah 53. So Isaiah 42 we have we read in Isaiah 42:6 I the Lord have called you in righteousness singular you who does the you refer to whom does the you refer and I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Now, this passage is going to be picked up and used and applied by Paul in Acts thirteen forty-seven to the mission of the apostles that they uh, function as a light to the Gentiles. It's also applied in the Gospels to Christ as a light to the Gentiles in terms of application from Isaiah 42.6. And if we look at Isaiah 42, it introduces the servant of the Lord. Behold, my servant whom I am uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. This is God the Father speaking. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, if you take notes in your Bible, you ought to put a big trinity at the top margin here because in that passage you have the old testament reference to the trinity you have the lord speaking he talks about my servant and he says i have put my spirit upon him so you have father you have my servant which is the messiah The Lord Jesus Christ and you have my spirit. So you have a clear mention of the Trinity there just for those who say that you don't find the Trinity mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. Verse 2, he will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. That indicates that he will his suffering, but it's not destructive. Smoking flax, he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. So that is the ultimate direction for the Messiah to establish justice in his kingdom. And the coastlands shall wait for his law. Now the term coastlands was a term that usually referred to the Greek islands. And so this becomes a general term for the Gentiles. So twice in this section you have a reference to the fact that the ministry of of the, the servant is going to not only be towards Israel, but it's going to extend to the Gentiles verse 5 we read, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, and who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk on it. Two important doctrines there. One, it starts with God as the Creator God, and so as the Creator God, He is the one who provides uh, the the redemption solution. And the second thing that we see there is that He's the one who gives breath. That's the word neshama, which indicates that the source of life comes from God and that life is related to breath, as we have taught in the past related to the uh, origin of life and when full human life is present uh, when when breath begins at birth. It gives breath to the people who walk on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you... In righteousness. So it is talking about the mission of the servant. He is called, which has a reference to his being designated with a specific mission in righteousness. So that this mission is going to be characterized uh, by righteousness. I will hold your hand, indicating God's sovereign care of the Messiah during his ministry in the incarnation. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the the people. So the role of the Messiah is so tightly connected to the establishment of this covenant that they are seen here as almost identical. I will give you as a covenant to the people. So this distinguishes, this shows that this covenant that's mentioned here can't be the Mosaic covenant. It can't be the Davidic covenant, it can't be the land covenant, it has to be some other covenant. So it must be a reference to the uh, to the New Covenant. As I pointed out before, the term New Covenant is only used in the Jeremiah 31-34 passage. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in the darkness from the prison house. And this is one of the passages that the rabbis went to to substantiate their position that one of the distinguishing characteristics of the Messiah would be that he would uh, give sight to those who were blind from from birth, born blind from birth, not someone who became blind later on. And this would be a unique sign of his uh, uh, that he was the Messiah, signifying that he was the Messiah, which is the background for understanding the miracle in John 9 when Jesus heals the man who's born blind from birth. And as soon, by doing that, he is making an extremely clear statement that he is the Messiah, and the rabbis all understood it, but they refused to accept it, operation suppression of truth in unrighteousness. So this is another indication of the new covenant. Now, we'll go to the next passage, which is also in the same same section of Isaiah, the servant songs, Isaiah 49.8, and it is set in the context of millennial fulfillment. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh again, In an acceptable time, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people again, connecting the new covenant to the work of the servant. I will give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, or it could be even to restore the land. Because the word for, the Hebrew word for uh, land for earth is eretz, and the word for the land is eretz, which is the same word that's used for promised land. Sometimes it's difficult to tell if it's talking about just to the to the to restore the earth, or to restore the land, meaning the promised land. I think that there's a very good case could be made in this passage that that restoration is talking about the promised land because the context of Isaiah 49:8 is that the time when this will happen, when the Messiah establishes this covenant, happens after a lengthy per- period of destruction and desolation of the land and is associated with a restoration of the land. Now let's just look briefly at the context. The, the, we don't want to make the mistake of just going in here and taking these verses right out of context as proof, proof text. Go back to verse 1. Again, we see an emphasis here on the Messiah as a light to the Gentiles. Listen, O coastlands. Again, that term was used to refer to the islands off the Mediterranean, the islands of the Greeks. So it becomes a, a metaphor for the Gentiles. Gentile nations, listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me, so it is the servant speaking, the Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother, from the womb of my mother, the inward parts of my mother. He has made mention of my name. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. That reminds me of the picture of when Jesus returns and Revelation 19, out of his mouth proceeds a sharp two-edged sword. It pictures judgment. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. Talking about how God prepared him for his role as Messiah. He said to me, you are my servant, O Israel. Wait a minute. Doesn't that say that Israel is the servant? Now if you stop there, you'll think that. But if you go down to verse 5, it becomes clear that the nation Israel can't be equated to the servant. Because they're obviously distinct. What we have in verse 3 is that the servant is the personification of everything Israel as a nation should have been. And so he is identified or called O Israel," in verse three. He said to me, "You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified." Then I said, "I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. And surely my just reward is with the Lord and work my work with my God and my work with my God." Verse five. And now the Lord says, "Who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him?" So the servant can't be Israel and then bring Israel back to God. It's obviously two different entities here. So the servant's role is to bring Jacob back to him. And a lot of times in Scripture, when Israel is referred to as Jacob instead of Israel, because they were the same name for the same person, Jacob is born. He's the heel grabber. He comes out second from the womb. He's the twin of Esau. He's called the heel grabber, Yaakov. He's the he's the chiseler, the swindler, as we studied in Genesis. He's the one who's always trying to make life work on his terms. He's gonna he's gonna work out the best deal. And then when he God works through his life through about a period of twenty years when he's out of the land and he's working for. Uh, Rachel, but he gets deceived and gets Leah instead. Then he has to work another seven years for Rachel, and then he ends up working another six years before he finally comes back to the land. When he comes back into the land and he has the face-to-face with encounter with God at Peniel, this is when God, he wrestles with the angel of God, and God gives him the new name Israel. And when Israel is referred to in context like this as Israel versus Jacob, the name israel speaks of israel in their right relationship with god the nation in their right relationship to god and jacob it, when it, when the nation is called jacob like the time of jacob's trouble for the t- tribulation it's because the nation is viewed as apostate and that's why they're under judgment and discipline and so that's what we have here is that 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 that, that the role of the servant is to bring Jacob, that the term Jacob is envisioning the nation in in, an apostate condition, and it is the the servant is going to uh, bring Jacob back to Yahweh. So that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. So when we look at that uh, fourth line there, so that Israel is gathered to them, uh, if the servant is Israel, how can the servant... Israel, gather Israel back to him unless you make a distinction between, is, between him as an individual of in verse 3 that is just being identified as the personification of everything Israel should be. So obviously verse 5 makes it clear that the servant can't be the nation, must be viewed as an individual. So that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So the one speaking is God the Father, and he is saying it's not enough, it's a small thing, it's a limited thing that you just have a ministry to Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. The salvation of the Messiah isn't restricted to Israel, but is, and to the Jews, but is expanded beyond that as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors. So, there is the reference that Yahweh, God the Father, is speaking here, and he is called the Redeemer of Israel because he's the one who is the architect of the plan of redemption, and he is speaking to him whom man despises. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the servant. The servant is the one who is despised. That comes out in Isaiah chapter 53. So you clearly have two personages here. One is both divine. One is God the Father. The other has to be God the Son. And the Father is called the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One. So, again, we have these Trinitarian passages where the activities and the role of of the Son are also fully ascribed to the Father. That gets confusing for some people, though. In some many passages, like Colossians one seventeen Jesus Christ is the one who created all things, and by him all things were created. Then you get into Revelation chapter four and five, and you have the four living creatures singing praise to God because you created all things, and see if you If you're not careful in your understanding of theology and you build these abstract principles, and I've heard people do this, where they abstract out, well, Jesus Christ was the Creator. And you make that a lockdown principle. You come into Revelation 4. You see the angels ascribing honor to the one on the throne, saying He's the one who created all things. Then what you can make is an interpretive blunder because you've got a poor hermeneutic, and say, "Oh, the one on the throne here has to be the Son because it's the Creator," and then you take that and you run it back into Revelation one seventeen, one seven, the one or one five through seven, the one sitting on the throne. You try to make all that be the Father, and you just end up making a confused mess. And I've heard people do that, so that's why I point that out. You can't do that. You have to recognize that in many passages. The Father and the Son are both ascribed the same thing. And the Father because He is the one who designs the plan. He's the Redeemer, according to this passage. He's the Creator, according to this passage. But Jesus is also the Redeemer because He's the one who performs the work of redemption. He's the Creator because He performs the work work of creation. So verse 8. Our passage. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you, and I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. And the idea of hearing his prayer, that has to, and the day of salvation, this has to do not with the work on the cross. It has to do with the prayers of the Son, during the present age as He is praying to the Father to give Him the kingdom. And we've seen this in previous studies. Daniel 7, you have the Ancient of Days and the Son is waiting to be given the kingdom. The Son of Man is being wait- is waiting to be given the kingdom. So, uh, 49.8 is not talking about being, the the Son being sustained on the cross, it's talking about the present intercessory ministry of the son, the son as the Son of Man praying to the Father to give Him the kingdom. And this is ultimately given when He returns at the second coming, which is the day of salvation. This is the day when salvation is completed for Israel. And that is when... The uh, covenant is given to the people to restore the earth. Restoration of the earth doesn't occur until the second coming. So we have to understand this whole passage within the context of what happens at the second coming. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore for the purpose of restoring the earth to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. And that's really, that's, doesn't make as much sense to us, but it's the desolate possessions. It's the idea of inheritance. We've talked about this before. Inheritance has to do with possession, and why, And it's desolate. Why is it desolate? Because the land has been been the center of this violence and a warfare during the tribulation and preceding that. Now, two thousand years of destruction. So it shows that the establishment of the covenant comes after a lengthy period when the land is desolate. And so it is restored to the people. That is an extremely important observation to make on this particular, this particular passage. When we go from here, skip forward about five chapters to Isaiah 54.10. Isaiah 64, I mean 54,10. Again, this is a passage related to the future restoration of the nation. Now the first part of this verse, in 54:10, says, "For the mountains shall depart, and the hills shall be removed." What this is describing is the fact that even though there may be physical changes on the planet, this is the contrast. There's a contrast between the change among the terra- in the terrain versus the unchanging aspect of God's, God's kindness, God's loving kindness. This is a word we're studying a lot lately. We studied it Sunday morning. We studied it last week on Tuesday night. It's the Hebrew word chesed, meaning his faithful, loyal love. It's not just mercy. Some translations translate that way. It's not just love. It's not just kindness. It's more than that. It is an extremely robust concept that includes his faithfulness, his loyalty, his steadfastness, that his love is unchanging and unaffected by anything, and that no matter how much instability we may see around us, his love never changes. So he says, "...the mountains shall depart, the hills be removed, but my kindness, my loving kindness, shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed." So we add this idea, we've seen already that it's everlasting, but now we have an idea that it's a covenant of peace. There won't be war anymore. That is, only when this new covenant is enacted that there will be peace in Israel. So says the Lord who has uh, mercy on you. Again, this is the thrust of this, entire, in, of this entire chapter. And this is the focal point, is that this covenant of peace will be established and no longer will the nation suffer, no more will it be overrun and be the, be the um, a victim of violence. Then the next passage is going to be in Isaiah 55, verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me, God says, here and your souls shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. So we now see the aspect of the covenant as eternal or everlasting, and it's connected with David. And notice it says, and I will make, which is future tense, showing that the everlasting covenant is a future covenant. The Davidic covenant has already been established. So the Davidic, even though the Davidic covenant isn't fulfilled, this is talking about a future covenant and connecting it uh, then to the davidic covenant now let 's look at the context. One of the great verses on salvation and the free grace gospel is in isaiah fifty five verse one isaiah fifty five one says ho everyone who thirsts come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. See you have no money and you buy it 's a juxtaposition of what appears to be contradictory concepts to grab our attention that it 's free. Come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That is salvation. It is free. There is no cost. It is free to the one who is getting it. It doesn't mean it is free. It's not free to God. It wasn't free to Christ. Christ paid the penalty, but grace means it is free to us. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Somebody always pays. It's always amazed me and other pastors, and we chuckle about this, that among grace churches, there is this mistaken notion that grace is free. which And it's amazing. Now, this isn't true of this congregation. So I just want to say that because I don't want you to think that I'm um, getting onto to you. But it is true in a lot of doctrinal churches that they're almost afraid to, to give financially to the Lord. Well, it's grace. I mean, somebody else will pay for it. Well, if you get 100 people in the congregation and they're all thinking somebody else is going to pay for it, nobody's going to pay for it. So there's a responsibility to give because not because you have to, not to gain God's pleasure, not to impress God, but in response to God's grace. And ministries like ours operate on grace because of the goodness and the grace and graciousness and the kindness of many people who supply. For uh, Dean Bible Ministries, make it possible to uh, provide all of the different things on the internet. Now we put uh, MP3s out there. People don't have to order them. People don't have to send in a little envelope now every month to make sure they get their order in. With a little reminder that they can make a don- make a donation. They don't have to. And it's, you know, the, part of the challenging thing of this is you really have no idea what's going on out there. You really don't. In the old days, when it was tapes, you had some idea how many people were listening because you knew how many tapes were being ordered every month. Now there's there's no clue how much is, is going on. And there have been some ministries that have been so paranoid about about the fact that if you don't have this ongoing mail connection where you're sending something out and then they're sending a an envelope back in with their order, which is a subtle reminder to put a little check in there, that somehow God won't provide, and so they make it a little more difficult to get things. And we just put everything out there free of charge and don't emphasize the giving, even though we have our financial policy out there, and God just has so graciously provided. And now we have some folks here who are have been engaged in a project for the last, I don't know, six or seven months in converting the, the videos, the DVDs, to a google video format and uploading this to Google hosting the website i don't know all the details but what this means is that all the videos are going to be available to anybody to just download onto their computer and we're not restricting this and and so many ministries do this you got to pay i mean it's amazing i was wondering what's going to happen so a lot of ministries charge 3 or $4 or even $5 for a cassette tape. What are they going to do when we make this shift to MP3s? Because you can put 20 or 30 MP3s on a CD, and what are they going to do? Well, they don't put 20 or 30 MP3s, and they'll put three or four and charge $20. Or if it's a DVD, they'll charge 15 or $20 a DVD. And this is just—it just is amazing to me—and people just don't want to trust God anymore to supply the resources. And God supplies the resources for the material to go out, and we need to just relax and provide it and supply it. That's what grace is all about. But somebody has to supply, and if the money dries up and there's no money, then it just won't go out. But uh, we're not going to sit back and have as a policy some sort of uh, restrictive. Uh, control that makes sure people have to always order from us because we're afraid somehow the money's going to dry up because God God just has to sell a few more cattle that's all it is he owns cattle on a thousand hills and he can just sell a few more cattle or a few more sheep and he's going to take care of things and always has so we have this great Example of peace, I mean, of grace here. Just those who have no money come buy and eat without money and without price. It's not that it is, there was no cost, but the cost is paid for by God. He pays the price. He says in verse 2, Why do you spend money for what is not bread? For what does not sustain? What doesn't really supply life? And I just think of all these people who go to all these churches and what you see is a constant uh, marketplace. They have bookstores and they have... Uh, I've been in churches where uh, you'll have a few, a couple of... two or three songs after church, but that gives enough time to run off about 50 or 60 uh, cassettes and have them all at the back door, so when people go out, they can buy their tape of that morning's message for $5. What are these churches going to... and, and, And they're not really getting healthy food. And that's what this is getting at. Why do you go to these churches that are merchandising religion and you're not really getting any doctrine or any truth that sustains life? Why do you spend money for not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy when you can get the truth for free? Because it's based on grace. He says, listen carefully to me, eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me, God says, here your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. And what this passage emphasizes, it's addressed to Israel That there is a condition set up that must be satisfied before the new covenant will be established. And that is they have to turn and accept the grace of God. And until they turn to accept the grace of God, which means nationally, corporately, not individually but corporately to accept Jesus as the Messiah, then the times of refreshing will not come. And that's what happened, or what didn't happen, at the first advent. You had a tremendous number of individual Jews who were saved, who accepted Christ as the Messiah, who trusted in him, but the leadership, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, uh, rejected him, and the vast majority of people rejected him, and so there was a national rejection, but there were thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of Jews who accepted him as, as the Messiah. But it wasn't the nation as a whole, it wasn't this, the, the corporate leadership uh, accepting him as the Messiah. And so that's the call here is to the nation, to the leaders, to those who represent the nation, to the nation as a whole, to respond to the grace of God. And at that time, this everlasting covenant is established, which is related to, it's different from, but it's related to the sure mercies of, of, uh, of David. Verse four says, "Indeed, I've given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people." This is written some three hundred years after David died. Well, it doesn't make sense unless David is going to be resurrected and put in a position of political leadership over the nation in the future kingdom, which is what Ezekiel is going to spell out: is that David is going to be the prince, the leader over the uh, over the. Israelites over the Jews in the, in the millennial kingdom Jesus Christ will reign over the nations but it will, is David who will be resurrected and reign over the people. Okay, our next passage in Isaiah is Isaiah 59:21. Isaiah 59:21 As for me says the Lord this is my covenant with them the idea here is this is what the covenant will consist of. And here he will summarize some of the characteristics of this covenant. Remember, Isaiah is writing uh, some 200 years, 150 years or so, before Jeremiah writes Jeremiah 31. He says, My spirit is upon you, and my words which I put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth. So the first thing we notice is that one of the distinctive characteristics of the establishment of the New Covenant has to do with the role of the Holy Spirit to the nation. The second thing is that that is going to be related to the content of God's revelation, His words. His words are put in their mouth. And they shall not depart from their mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, from this time and forevermore. And the implication is that there will not be a time of negative volition among the the Jews from this point forward. From the time that that covenant is established, there will be no more negative volition among the Israelites. Now that's going to be developed more in passages when we get to Ezekiel, when we get to Jeremiah, but that is this is the first time that aspect is mentioned in Isaiah fifty nine. Now let me give you four basic observations related to these passages that we have looked at. First of all, in all of these references let me look at one more. One more, 61.8. For I the Lord, I the Lord love justice, I hate robbery for burnt offering, I will direct their work in truth, and I will make with them an everlasting covenant. So we bring in the idea in 61.8, again, of an eternal covenant. It won't end. Whereas the old covenant was viewed as temporary, this is viewed as permanent. Isaiah 61.9, their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles, their offspring among the people. All who see them, all who see the Jews, shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. No more anti-Semitism. Okay, now let me give you four principles of observation about these passages. In all six references, there is a covenant promised to the nation that is not enacted until there has been a period of national judgment. In all six of these it sees a period of national judgment preceding the giving of this covenant. It's implied by the fact that once this covenant comes into effect there's not going to be a change there's no more negative volition so obviously that implies that whatever judgment we see today must come before this. So in all six references it's clear that a national a period of national Judgment and discipline precedes a period of unparalleled prosperity and blessing. The second thing that we observe in, in these passages, all these passages, but primarily in Isaiah 42 6 and Isaiah 49 8, I'll put those back up here so you can remember them. Isaiah forty-two six, I the Lord have called you in righteousness. Will hold your hand. Will keep you and give you as a covenant. And Isaiah forty um, forty-nine eight, I will give you as a covenant. That the servant of the Lord is viewed as the mediator of this covenant. He his role is so clo- closely connected to the giving of the covenant that he's virtually identified uh, with the covenant. God is appointing His servant to function as the one who establishes this covenant. Third thing we see in connection with Isaiah 55, uh, Isaiah 55, 3, Isaiah 54 is that this servant is presented as the future heir of David. He is a Davidic descendant. And as the seed of David, he is the one who in Acts establishes uh, this uh, covenant. This connects him. This terminology is parallel to the covenant, Davidic covenant passages in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, Psalm 89, verses 29 to 30. And in all of these, uh, we have an emphasis on God's hesed, on His faithful, loyal love. So, the, these pa- this passage in Isaiah 55:3 connects the covenant to the Davidic covenant, the new covenant to the Davidic covenant. Then, the fourth observation is that the servant. Fulfills a saving role. He provides salvation for the Gentiles. He not only comes for Israel. He is a light to the Gentiles. We see this in Isaiah, both Isaiah forty-two six, the context, and the context of Isaiah forty-nine eight. He is given as a light to the Gentiles. It's it's too little for him to just provide salvation for Israel. He will provide salvation for all of the. For all of the Gentiles. So, 100, 150 years before Jeremiah, God promises that He will make an, a future, everlasting covenant with Israel. It's not temporary, like the former covenant. Okay, that brings us in our as we go through the timeline. That brings us to the next key passage, which is Jeremiah 31, uh, 31, which is the passage that's quoted. In Hebrews chapter 8, Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one to 34. And we will start there next time because we just have five minutes left and that's not enough time but to barely barely introduce it and we'll lose the context. So I'll just stop. We've covered the Isaiah passages tonight. We'll start with Jeremiah 31 next Thursday night. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time to study these things, recognizing the scope of your plan that was laid out in your thinking, uh, and in our terms, billions of years before creation began. That the outworking of events in history is not by chance or happenstance, but there is an there is a governance under your sovereign will, working all things in the direction of the cross and the and Jesus work on the cross as our Savior, paying the price for sin, establishing the basis in his shed blood for the new covenant, and then his rejection, the present church age, his future return and the establishment of the kingdom, and a future for regenerate Israel in the millennial messianic kingdom. Father, we understand that our role as church age is related to his the current position as high priest and his future role as king and we will come back with him to rule and reign with him and that we are now in a training period to prepare us for that future time let us not lose sight of the goal that we are studying these things that our thinking is shaped by a divine viewpoint of history so that we see why we, why we live what our purpose is why we're going through the things in life that we're going through in preparation for that future uh, responsibility, the future reign with Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.